I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll be in just a few moments. That, of course, is called at various times and places uh, the, the resurrection chapter. So, of course, that's in keeping with our theme for the morning, we believe in the resurrection. Now, to help us think that direction here, I will just want to remind us uh, a few moments ago, Pastor Stephen was uh, expressing our gratitude to Corey Mowry for playing for us up here. And uh, all of that plays into the same opening comment from me. There's something about our kids uh, from birth, uh, growing up and leaving us, that is a, a, a profound teaching moment. Uh, we learn a lot from our kids, of course. And um, not only is they, when they're young, of course, they get all excited. They got another year older. I'm four. Now I'm five. Now I'm 10. And as I chatted with a young lady I hadn't seen in a while today, uh, honey, what have you done with your front teeth? You're missing teeth now. Man, it's a really big deal. Well, give it a few years and adding a couple more years, look in the mirror and saying, I'm older now and I'm missing some teeth. It's not quite the same rush as when they're younger. Uh, there's something about that process, though, of kids growing. You say, wow, I see my future here. But, but there are things to learn about growth, and even as we're going to see today, um, life and death and living before death. And so we believe in the resurrection. On the one hand, you say, well, that's about dying, coming to the end of that growth process. Well, sure, uh, we'll be talking about that very directly, I hope, hopefully in a good way for us. But also, there's something about living, about our bodies that the Bible addresses as well. And so we want to talk about that uh, this morning as well. So we get to cover a whole number of, uh, of really uh, wonderful, I think, exciting things. And um, your Bible's open to 1 Corinthians 15. Your sermon notes in front of you, I think, will be a great help to you. So um, I don't know that you've heard these things discussed in a sermon in a while, maybe ever. But here you go. We're, we're going to pray together. And we'll get after it here. So join me, please, as we pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege of having the Word of God in front of us, the living, inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. Thank you for telling us what you were like. Thank you for telling us about things we never would have known about if you hadn't told us. And for giving us your Word as a rule and guide for our life. So would you help us now during this time that we open the scriptures together, uh, stir us, uh, our hearts to understand, to love what is here, to believe every bit of it, and then to live in light of it. So do that work, I pray, um, by the Spirit of God among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, under the section called Review, I will remind you that this is week six of a 10-part series called We Believe. And there's a bit of a chronicle here of the things that we have been talking about. We began with theology proper. We defined some of our terms, the doctrine of God, and have worked our way through a number of other areas. Because of the nature of this preaching series, uh, you'll know that each week I have been mentioning specific theological terms that you don't ordinarily hear in a church service. Usually those things are reserved for Bible college or seminary places, but as long as we're at it, we're going with some terms, okay? And we'll do that today uh, without having to pay tuition for it. 
but but believe the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. I've given you here a part of the Sunset Bible Church doctrinal statement. It is just that. There are two other sections, uh, but I gave you just the opening uh, line here, and we'll read it and give a little definition. So it says here, we believe in the bodily resurrection of all people, the saved, and of course that term refers to those who are trusting Christ as their Savior from sin, the saved, those who know Jesus, to eternal life, and the unsaved, that is, those who are people who are not trusting Christ as Savior, uh, to judgment and everlasting punishment. So that's a reflection of several things, the reality of a thing called the bodily resurrection and things we'll talk about in a few weeks, uh, the eternal state, that is, eternal life, and then judgment. Well, the Bible really does present those two very divergent views as the final end of all people, one or the other. And of course, that's very sobering, and it should point us to uh, the pursuit of figuring out how to be on the good side, not the bad side. That seems to me a very wise way to live and uh, pursue things. So resurrection, though, that specific issue today. Now, on our way to 1 Corinthians, I move to this part called a lesson in individual eschatology. There's the term for the day. So you remember over the last six weeks or so, five, uh, ology, the study of, you did this in school, geology and anthropology and so on. And in theology, there is a category called eschatology and individual eschatology. So eschatology, the, the, the ology part, the study of eschatos is the Greek term for the last things or ultimate things or future things. So sometimes people are excited about the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and they're thinking about eschatology, a study of the things to come. So, so the return of Christ and a millennium and, and the nation of Israel and all kinds of things, eschatology. Well, when you talk about individual eschatology, you're talking about, uh, but what about me? So not the nations and not the Antichrist and all that. It's another topic. But what about people and what about me? What's... What's my future look like? And I'll tell you that in the theology book that I was uh, introduced to in seminary, that would be Millard Erickson's book called, amazingly, Christian Theology. This is the unabridged one-volume edition of, uh, oh, perhaps 1,200 pages or so, all of which we in seminary read all the way through and were tested on. There is, believe it or not, a chapter entitled, Ha! Individual Eschatology. And it gives you an outline. It talks about death, the reality of death, nature of death, and the intermediate state. What is that? Well, we're going to talk about that, give you a little definition, intermediate state, between, intermediate meaning between what and what. So what, what's that about? And then the implications of this. Well, there's a chapter in this one on, on individual eschatology. Now, keep going as you look at my little list here, introducing the topic. There is a closely related topic that is, is, is really an important part of, of the, the doctrine of the resurrection, and that is a theology of the body. I would submit to you that many people, many Christians, in fact, people in church, people outside the church, really have a deficient theology of the body. We get our theology of the body from the world. So I'm asking several things here. What did God make when he made people as a theological term again, embodied spirits? 
that is inhabiting an actual body. What did he make? Specifically, are bodies good or nasty or dirty or base? How do you view the human body? And I think sometimes Christians have a low view of the body, like this nasty thing you can hardly get rid of, can hardly wait to get rid of. Ugh, yeah, someday, finally, one that works. Okay, I understand some of those sentiments, but may I also press back a bit that in the beginning, when God made humans, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered the world, God delighted in what he made. Don't rush too quickly by that. God made Adam, said he took dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living soul. And God delighted in what he made. God made Eve, a little different process. He delighted in what he made. Now, he didn't make Adam and say, I think I can do better and make a woman. Nor did he make Adam and say, amazing, he needs a slave. That's not what happened. God made Adam and Eve, male and female, and delighted in what he made. And I just think, pause for a moment and reflect on this from Genesis 1 and 2. God made what he made on purpose. And it says in the Bible, God looked at all that he made and behold, it was very good. And contrary to what some, I think, would have As God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he wasn't awkward. He wasn't going, oh dear. No, he delighted in what he made. And he said, this is very good. This is very good. So I think a theology of the body begins in Genesis 1 and 2. Now I press on all that because of the next little bullet point here. The promise of God to resurrect our bodies. It's a theological statement of God's value for the physical body. In contrast to a biblical worldview, the Greeks and Romans did not believe in the resurrection of the body because they saw bodily existence as an inferior state. Interesting. The goal then, as they saw it, was for the soul to flee or be liberated from the body. Did you know that? They thought it was a wonderful thing. Finally, and sometimes Christians say similar things hopefully for a different motivation, finally free, finally, hmm, wow. Let's make sure we're saying such statements from a Christian worldview. Uh, God did a good thing when he made us as embodied spirits. I mentioned here uh, New Testament Gnosticism. By that, I don't mean Gnosticism as taught in the New Testament. I mean, in the first century when the New Testament was being written, there was a, a, a pagan philosophy called Gnosticism that is addressed and rebuked in several New Testament books, but it it holds a similar view of a low view of the body, specifically the idea that when Jesus, God, took on human form, well, how could this be? The Gnostics, they did a number of things. They said, if he was really God, he couldn't have been a real body, because for God to inhabit inhabit a, you know, yuck, this, this can't be. How could God live in one of these? And if God really did inhabit something, it had to be something like an elevated body or a spiritual body or a something improved. It just can't be this base and vile thing. Or it wasn't really God. He was like a real human, but like elevated a bit. So they were trying to deal with something different. They couldn't believe that God 
would inhabit the human body. And by the way, that makes sense of some things in the Bible that you might read and say, I don't get that. One of those would be 2 John 7, where the Apostle John says, the one who doesn't believe that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. That's what he's addressing. He's addressing a specific other viewpoint. He's saying, if you don't believe that Jesus, God, from heaven itself, he took on a real human body, then this is not a biblical worldview. So he was calling that out, hence the the verse 2 John 7. You'll see that throughout the writings of John in particular. So some of these things are the backdrop to what we're going to be studying today. And then I just mentioned here, as with many doctrinal themes, there there are hints of resurrection in the Old Testament, not a fully developed theology of resurrection, And I'm giving you three, if you turn the page, three that you could look at. Job 19, which you sang a moment ago, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's right out of Job uh, 19, 25, and 26. So we sang scripture with this. Uh, Isaiah 26, you could also go to Daniel. I think it's chapter 12, maybe chapter 11, but I think 12. And then Hebrews 11 looks back at what Abraham believed. Um, But those are hints from the Old Testament. So with all of that as a background, individual eschatology, what happens to people and the, the, the goodness of the human body? By the way, I, I should reference this. Uh, if you want a book to read on this, you know me. You, you should get this. I'm sure some people ordered this already before they left earlier sermons, first hour or second. This is called Love Thy Body. It's written by Nancy Piercy, who is a, an award-winning writer, former agnostic, uh, had a, quite a journey of faith to arrive um, one could even say against her will, I suppose, at a Christian worldview. And being the wonderful writer she is, she's written prolifically about how a Christian worldview makes best sense of the world we live in. And this is called Love Thy Body. It's a theology of the body, uh, subtitled Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. She wrote this in 2018. It addresses all the main issues that you would expect because a lot of things are being done and said about our bodies and sexuality today. And she's a wonderful writer to say, well, you want to talk about it and have the Bible open in front of you or you just want to talk about it and make up your own path? How about if we open the Bible? And she does a really good job of addressing these things from an actual Christian worldview. I appreciate it a lot. You should read this if you're interested in those kinds of conversations. Love thy body. Love thy body. You can have it in two days from Amazon. That's right. No, no, uh, no commission for me, but you should get it. It's a good book. Now, having said all that, I come to 1 Corinthians 15 then. Okay, your Bibles are open in front of you. I'm going to read two sections. The whole chapter is worth your reading, of course, uh, on this topic, but uh, under the heading, the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is a pattern for ours. So there's a section here we're going to look at and read about the resurrection of Jesus. And then there's a section on our resurrection, your body, and what the Bible says about that. So that's where we're going to go. But I want to read then 1 Corinthians 15, this first text, 12 through 26. So hear God's word then as I read this. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? which many said, of course, in his day. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God 
because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Okay, did you, did you track with that? <sighs> you might have to read it again later. Four, he says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now he turns the corner. But in fact, he hastens to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, this is Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see this? This is reflecting the same truth, same order as 1 Thessalonians 4. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, death itself. I'm going to stop right there. Of course, there's more to be read. Now, the heading then, of course, the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is a pattern for ours. Verses 12 to 19, Paul is weaving an argument about Christ and the resurrection. Specifically, he's pointing out the necessity that Christ was truly raised from the dead. Not a myth, not a fairy tale. In fact, it really does matter to anybody who would look at Easter and say, well, that's the Christian myth or that's the Christian story. And quite honestly, if it did or didn't happen, that really doesn't matter. Paul would say, oh, you better believe it matters because if he's not raised from the dead, I'm going home and you should too. Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, if Christ was not raised from the dead, what hope do you have of life after this one? You've got nothing so go home and watch football. See, Paul is very, very clear. If Christ was not actually, truly, physically raised from the dead, the whole thing falls apart. Now, I gave you a quote here. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the central doctrine of Christian theology. I put EDT. I referenced this book a couple weeks ago, the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. If you like reference books... Um, this is one you could get. I don't know what it costs these days. I got it when it was, well, it was never cheap. But nonetheless, theology books cost money. It might be worth your $75 or whatever it is these days. It might be only 50 The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, don't get it on Kindle. It'll use the whole thing. But here you go. EDT, though, correctly says about Jesus' resurrection that it is the central doctrine of Christian theology. And it, on, on the resurrection of Christ its truthfulness, all of Christianity rises or falls. And those of us who are people of faith, who believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, um, understand that. That's why Easter time, we talk about Christ rising from the dead and reasons to believe it and evidences from the Bible and all kinds of things. It really does matter. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, as Paul says here, we really should all just go home and kind of knock it off. But then he says, of course, verse 20, but Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. 
and there are profound implications for you and for me. Now, let's, let's think together about this. When I use these terms, some of them I'm using very specifically, and I want to add a couple more, historical, meaning it really happened in history, actual human history, that there really was a morning when the grave was empty. It wasn't just a myth. It wasn't something the disciples came up with years later because they wanted to keep the memory of Jesus alive. Some have taught that. Oh, sure, Jesus is alive today. Some would say early liberalism taught this. Uh, Of course, Jesus is alive today. The spirit of Jesus, meaning we remember him. It's okay. I know what you mean. Uh, There was a time when people even said that and called themselves Christian pastors. Imagine, I don't think they've really read the text because they would understand why are you even doing that? Because if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, what hope do you have? Zero. So stop it already and quit playing nice, right? Like be a nice, good, moral person. For what end? if, if If there is no life after this one, what really are you trying to be nice for if indeed you try? These are realities to think about. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And who cares at that point what people think of you? Historical. So actually in history, a morning that the grave was empty. Bodily, meaning not the spirit of Jesus was raised. Not we're keeping the idea of Jesus alive. No, the body, and may I say, the same body that was crucified. To get more specific. That same body that died was raised to new life. That's the Christian doctrine, okay? So not just a real body, but the same body that was crucified was raised to new life. Now, the Bible gives some detail from the life of Jesus. And you see here under my second bullet point, under that heading, I want to go back to Luke chapter 24, The Bible is making a very loud point here, and you should hear it. So you can join me back there in Luke, or just wait till we come back to 1 Corinthians 15. We won't be long. But in Luke 24, the things we're talking about today with resurrection are specifically being addressed, and some questions are being answered that you may not even hear, okay? So as you come to Luke 24, this this is taking place after Jesus has lived a perfect life, died on the cross in your place, paying the price for your sin. He has risen from the dead three days later. Now, in the early part of Luke 24 is that road to Emmaus. He comes and takes a walk with a couple early followers of, that, of Jesus. They didn't even recognize him because they knew he had died, and they just didn't recognize him. And then they did later, at the, when they were, they were eating together, they saw him, they recognized him, it says, in the breaking of the bread, and they ran back to Jerusalem to say, he's alive. No, really, he is. And that's where we pick it up in verse 36. And so I read, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. Okay, stop for a moment. That was a very nice thing to say. It was common greeting, but if... The disciples had just watched Jesus die on the cross days before. I mean, really, they recognized death. Wicked, awful crucifixion death. So Jesus shows up. Before the last paragraph, it says he had disappeared from that place. Here he stands among them. You better believe, he says, hey, calm down. Peace be with you. Because, it says in verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost or a spirit. Well, that would make sense. 
I mean, that's the best answer you got because the Jesus they knew had died. For all the people that say, yeah, but he, maybe he didn't really die, et cetera. No, these guys were not knuckleheads. They understood death. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, stop for a moment. So this existence of Jesus in resurrection was not just a ghost. There was actual, he says, flesh and bones. Now here, as in the Gospel of John that we'll see in a moment, I take this to mean, again, John's very explicit about it, the evidence of the scars from crucifixion. They're still evident on his hands. See my hands and my feet, it is I. Touch me and see. We're not told if they did or not. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. So this is a different existence. Some uh, in theology try to describe this and uh, grab terms to do so. One of those is a physio-spiritual body. If you read enough theology, you'll come across that. It's an attempt to combine physical that has flesh and bones with spiritual. So he could disappear from one place, show up in another. So not limited by the same things that limit these bodies, and yet one that can be touched and has flesh and bones. Now, the part about the scars here, as in John, causes some people to ask, okay, wait a minute. So when I was a kid, I drove my 10-speed into a tree, and I have a cool gash down my left leg. Am I stuck with that scar forever? Or I have a trick knee, or a bad back. I mean, come on, I thought I was going to get rid of those things. Well, I... I The Bible doesn't address all those things, maybe from a 10-speed, I don't know. But I think a glorified body would be one that, well, you don't have a bad back and your knee works correctly. The only scars that I think would be around would be the scars on the hands of Jesus. That's my opinion, okay? I've got a few scars as well. Um, I'm assuming those will be all gone and that the only scars in heaven would be the ones on the hands and feet of Jesus, Because for all of eternity, we will remember him as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We will sing the praises of of a savior who went to the cross for us. So it makes sense to me that there would be scars on his hands and feet, that we would remember him forever. So that's the best answer I have to that, because it's a question that sometimes people uh, really do ask. Now, Jesus isn't done here, is he? So we, we come back then to verse 41. Well, they're still, well, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? So, so you'll notice th- this is connected with their response. They, they're disbelieving. They can hardly believe their eyes. He says, okay, watch this. You got dinner? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. Why did he do that? Was he saying, boy, I'm famished. Disappearing from one room and showing up in another is hard work. Well, no. He's addressing their disbelief. He's wanting to show them something. See this body? It has, it has flesh and bones, and I can eat. And I'll be leaving in a minute through the, through the locked door. That's pretty cool. Now, I, I assume that if he was visiting people, instead of there in the land of Israel, if he was visiting people in Italy, and they would have had a plate of spaghetti or something, he would have had a piece of, well, a bite of spaghetti. If he'd have been eating uh, here, he might have had a taco or a, 
you know, piece of pizza. I don't know, the point isn't the food. The point is that in this existence, he could still eat. Isn't that interesting? All kinds of questions come to mind. I understand. John 20, I'm going to go there briefly as well on my way back to 1 Corinthians. So a similar scene is in John 20. The disciples, of course, you remember, were hard to convince. They were very hard to convince because they had seen him die. And if you have ever seen someone die and three days later said, oh, no, really, I saw them down, you know, down at the Safeway store or something, you would be very mad at the person who said that to you. Don't mess with me. Don't even, don't even. I was there. And death is cruel. And I saw. So the disciples of Jesus were not these giddy schoolboys running around just can hardly wait. Oh, of course I'll believe that. No, they, they weren't that stupid. Um, they were convinced he had died. They saw him. Okay, so hard, hard to convince. So Thomas, of course, sometimes called Doubting Thomas, he's one of those people who ask questions that some of you would ask. Thomas was the one who said, unless I see the nails, the scars themselves, unless I touch his side, unless I see where that spear went in, I will not believe it. So eight days later, I'm reading John 20, verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, you see the point being made, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, peace be with you. And then he talked straight to Thomas. Thomas, Tom, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand, take your hand and put it into my side. And do not, be, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, this is quite a confession from a first century Jewish person, my Lord and my God. See? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me, have not seen and yet believed. That would be you today. If you trust Christ as your savior, you would be in that category. You've not seen with your physical eyes or resurrected Christ, but you've believed it on the basis of the word of God. Wonderful. Okay, you come back to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to comment on a couple more things from this section. Uh, In verse uh, verse 18, you see the phrase, fallen asleep in Christ. You see this again in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You'll read this in other parts of the New Testament. You'll read this in the book of Acts when Stephen uh, is stoned uh, to death and he falls asleep. Okay, what do we mean by this? Uh, you're familiar with some of the studies of, of individual eschatology. You know that down through the years, there has been a doctrine that some, orga- some Christian groups have taught or sub-Christian groups, however you define it, uh, called soul sleep, um, that fall asleep would be literal. I take this to be a, a euphemism. The Bible's full of figures of speech. That does not violate literal interpretation. Uh, literal does not deny. People say, do you take the Bible literally? I, I hate that question because typically they mean something different by it than the way you read the Bible. So literal, so literal doesn't mean you ignore figures of speech. So the Old Testament, when it talks about, you know, God held back the winds from the four corners of the earth. Well, apparently the earth is a square then, right? Not literal, oh, stop it. North, south, east, and west. You ever heard of a compass? There are four points to a compass. Just work with it. It's a figure of speech from in every direction. Figures of speech fit in the Bible. And so here, fallen asleep, we do this. 
We have euphemisms for death, don't we? Uh, Rarely do we say, so-and-so has died. We usually soften it a bit, and we say, so-and-so has passed, or passed away, or we've lost so-and-so, or so-and-so left us. Those are ways we speak about death, because we want to, we soften it a bit instinctively, instead of just saying, they died. Uh, You rarely would someone say that, I think. Well, so here, fallen asleep, I take that to be a figure of speech, because death sure looks a lot like sleep, doesn't it? And may I offer on the other side, uh, evidence on the other side, so to speak, for not soul sleep, Jesus on the cross with the thief who repented, remember? And Jesus said, today you will join me in paradise. He didn't say, today you will enter soul sleep and be raised with the blessed. No, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, Same writer, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, famous passage, of course, speaks of death very directly and says to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. So, so I, think, I think the preponderance of the evidence in the New Testament is that when a believer closes his or her eyes in death, they open them in glory. Okay? I, I, and I take the, the expressions fallen asleep to be a, a kinder, gentler way to say they died. So that's my take on that. You can work with it as you wish, but I think that's the best way to read the Bible. Don't ignore figures of speech. They do not violate literal interpretation. Okay? Uh, no, one, no one proposes that except people who really try to be irritating. I can explain that later if you want to know what I meant by that. Um, often it's antagonists is what I'm saying. Often it's antagonists who want to say, well, you believe the Bible literally, so, and then they'll, it's like, well, I, <clears throat> yeah, I know how to read literature. I was educated that way. You probably were too, because you passed eighth grade literature, and if so, you learned about genres and figures of speech. You read the Bible according to good literary uh, education. So, uh, Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits. This is in verse 20, and it shows up again in verse 23. The first fruits. This is in Jewish language, it points to the first part of a great harvest to come. Okay? Jesus, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, those who've died. That means there's more to come. This would be you, by the way. Jesus, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Uh, if, you're a, if you were raising apples in that day, as the first ripe apples come to the tree and you picked a dozen to take to grandma to say it's going to be a great harvest, that dozen apples would be called the first fruits. Look, there's a great harvest yet to come. Here's the first pie of the season. And you'd celebrate so Jesus, raised from the dead, is, is, a, is a harbinger of a great harvest yet to come. Okay? That's the idea in good Jewish language. Then I wanted to point out as well, verses 21 and 22. This shows up again in the next text we'll read with brief comment. This, this contrast between Adam and Christ. So we read here in verse 21, For as by a man came death, this is Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So there's this, there's this interplay back and forth between the first Adam in, in the garden who disobeyed 
and the second Adam, Christ, who wrestled with in, in a garden, Garden of Gethsemane, and that ultimately resulted in obedience to life. So there's a contrast between the first Adam who brought death by his disobedience and Christ who brought life by his full obedience. More on that in a minute. Now, I want to shift then my last little paragraph. What will a resurrection body be like? I want to read a section, a couple brief comments, and talk about what happens if you're eaten by sharks. Okay? No, really. That's part of this sermon. I have to go there because you're wondering. So, so we're going to do that here in just a moment. So 1 Corinthians 15 I'm going to start reading at verse 35 and hear what God says here about resurrection bodies. So Christ's and then yours. So we read, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Here's your question. Paul says, you foolish person. So I I, I think he's reflecting verse 35 as maybe being asked by a cynic, a, a meme person. You understand what I mean by that? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So we're talking, he's going to use three different analogies here. So first we're farming. We plant a seed. It doesn't make you salivate yet. It's just a bare kernel. You stick it in the ground. God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. Now he's going to switch to a different category. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And that's, that's true. Uh, that's evident in the world. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the star, or the, the moon, rather, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So quickly, he's used four different pictures to say there are differences here between what you see on the one hand and what you see on the other. Then he says, here's the conclusion. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It's like that too. What is sown, and okay, I'm going to be very specific. This is talking about a person who has died. That's what this is talking about. Is a body absent the spirit. So what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown or placed in the ground in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Now, he's not talking here about dishonor like there's something dishonorable about being dead. It's just saying if you, uh, as I at times uh, am involved with people who are grieving the loss of a loved one, when a person dies, there's something very humble about that deceased person. Their physical body is here. If you're present, you know that person has left. There's something very humble and earthly about this. Okay? Very evident. So-and-so has left. And their body is here. That's all he's speaking of here. It's sown. It's perishable. It's sown in dishonor. It doesn't mean bad on them. It just means there's something very humbling about death. And uh, we could talk about that, and I do at times if we're in that setting. There's something very humbling about the process of death for a body. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in natural body. It is raised as spiritual body. He's going back and forth between the humility of this human body and what is to come. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, he says. Thus it is written, here's Adam again, the first man, Adam, became a living being, 
But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So there's an order. The first man, Adam, was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who were of the dust, that is, were subject to death. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That is, you know, Christ is your Savior, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is Christ in his resurrection in glory. I tell you this, he says, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So this again, 1 Thessalonians 4 The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, do you see this? Must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. But when this perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. I'm going to stop my reading right there. Glory all the rest of the way. So I I, I want to be clear on a couple of things here. What will the resurrection body be like? Well, first, it'll be like Christ's, a physical, spiritual body. What Jesus had is a pattern for what you and I will have. We who know Christ in resurrection, that is what we will have too. This earthly body, verse 50, is for here. It's made for this planet with gravity and air and food and all the things that are here. This body was made for here. It was not made to stand in the glorious presence of God. It, it'll need to be glorified for that. We'll need a new body like that of our risen Savior. And of course, all the pictures of this, as I've mentioned here already. So what if you're eaten by sharks? Or you're in a war and something terrible takes place and there's very little to be found of you. Or you're in a building uh, like 9-11 and, you're, and, and there's, there's nothing left to find. There's nothing left to bury. Well, how will God resurrect that? People ask sometimes in great cynicism, well, uh, my, my short answer, I suppose, would be I think the God that created the universe by the word of his power has not lost track of your genetic material. And whether you are buried and your body decays in the natural process of being placed in the ground or cremated or eaten by sharks, uh, God will have, the God who made DNA will not have any problem bringing you back together again. Uh, you remember as kids, some of us who were older, uh, they used to have these cool little toys with the iron fillings inside, and you used a magnet. You'd kind of put it here in the iron fillings. Do they still make that thing? Uh, uh, okay. I think of that as the resurrection. God says, I'm here, and there's your DNA. But I promise you this, there won't be a day on the resurrection when God is resurrecting people. So he looks around and says, where's Frank? I lost Frank. So, so please be aware, the one who created DNA can call it back together in a heartbeat. Now, another pressing question. Why do this? And, and when do we get this new body? I mentioned earlier the intermediate state as a theological category. The intermediate state is a whole body of teaching. The Bible doesn't say as much about it as we would like. That talks about death uh, now and before resurrection. Because 
First Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, voice of the archangel, trumpet of God, the dead in Christ, the, the dead in Christ, believers, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the, to meet the Lord in the air. So, so if our body is raised then, what if I get hit by a bus now? Then what? That's what people call, this intermediate time, is what people call the intermediate state. Do I get my resurrected body yet? Because it seems to indicate not yet. Okay, then what am I doing? Like hanging out? Well, the, the classic historic Christian doctrine of the intermediate state would say, well, sort of, but it's a happy hanging out because you're present with the Lord in your soul, your spirit, you're with the Lord. And this is a pretty good deal. Yes, there's going to be a day that resurrected body will come and rejoin spirit and God will redeem what died here on earth. Um, but, but that's the intermediate state, you would call it. Now, some have advanced an idea of immediate resurrection, it's called, which is a newer doctrine that says, no, as soon as you die, God goes zap and gives you a resurrected body then. Well, uh, that's interesting, less evidence to support that. And some of it you go, hmm, I'm not sure about that part, uh, or I flat out don't agree with that part. But I'm just saying, there are, these are things that people who are theologians think about in the middle of the night and write books about and sell multiple copies and cause people like all of us to read and go, I wonder. But I press back on to be absent from the body for the Christian is to be home with the Lord. And with that, I am greatly content. Resurrection, indeed, God cares about your body. God cares when he made Adam and Eve, he had a point to it. He didn't just make bodies to keep you happy or as playthings for your soul. No, he made, God made bodies in Genesis 1 and 2 for theological reasons. God made marriage for theological reasons. So there was a point to what he did and what he, when he made what he did. There was a point to it. So a theology of the body, I would commend to you as a point of study. What did God make when he made a body? Why would he resurrect a body? except it's a place where he found great joy in having created it. Huh. Maybe I should live well with this one. First, Thess- or First Corinthians 6, Paul is discussing this. He's talking about sexual immorality, sexual behavior outside of the bounds God intended. And he says, don't you know, Christian, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? And listen carefully, you are not your own. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, it says. So a big motivation to avoid sexual immorality is, no, no, your body doesn't belong to you. You thought it did, but it doesn't. It belongs to God who made it for very specific purposes. So there is a big theology of the body. I commend that book to you, Love Thy Body. It'll make you think. But today, uh, as we think about all these things, my biggest concern is that all of us who are listening and sharing in these, uh, this thinking time is that we would be ready for the day that, that our life is done, ready for resurrection to life by having trusted Christ as our Savior. That's the biggest deal. It really is. That you've trusted Christ as your Savior from sin. You cannot pay for your sin. You couldn't. It takes a perfect sacrifice to pay for your sin. Jesus was that is that for you today? 
So trusting Christ as your savior from sin is the way you prepare for the day that your life is done here. And let me tell you, it will be done here. I promise. And on that day, you want to be covered by the righteousness of Christ. Your sin paid for by his sacrifice on the cross so that you're ready to meet him. That's what you want. Not the option. Option B. I want to pray and we're going to remember Christ on his death, burial, and resurrection as we prepare to head out to the week. And I'm going to make a couple comments from 1 Corinthians 11 and where Paul teaches on this specifically. So if you have a Bible open, you can just shift to there. But I want to pray and then we'll close our service by remembering Christ through communion. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for how clearly the Bible speaks about these issues. Thank you for making us in the beginning, male and female. And in that initial creation, the joy that you found was palpable. Thank you for this. The beauty of your design, what you called good. And our Father, I thank you for Jesus, our Savior. I, I, I thank you for the day of resurrection to come. Help us now as we remember Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As always, we welcome you who know Jesus as your Savior to share with us in remembering Christ in communion. Communion is telling a story. It's a little piece of cracker and a little cup of juice. That's the, those are the two elements involved. The little cracker is a, is a pointing to the body of Christ broken for us, as we'll see in a moment. And the little cup of juice is a pointing to his blood shed for us. This is a significant remembrance for those who know Christ as Savior. And uh, so if, you, if that's you today, you're welcome to share with us. But please come then and be served. So in 1 Corinthians 11, there is a section where Paul, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And he tells about that Last Supper, very similar account to what you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A few variations, but, but the same basic details. As Jesus is there in a, in a Passover meal, using the elements that were part of a classic Passover meal to tell the story of what he was about to do. And so Jesus took bread, it says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. All the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same thing. He, he broke it. It was part of Passover. But the, the breaking of bread, this isn't a you know, nice big loaf of sourdough. This would be matzah. And it'd be that kind of break that when you break it, you would typically hear it. Snap. It was intended to be a very visceral uh, moment. Snap a body that is to be broken. The, the beating, the shedding of blood, the, the stripes that were laid upon him, the crucifixion. But I, I want to, as we think today about bodies, I, I want to just press on, on this for us. Um, the body that Jesus had uh, suffered and died. Referring to that physical moment 
where the spirit leaves the physical body, that last doorway, that which we, many of us, fear the most. Listen, Jesus walked through that same door ahead of you. Okay? In a sense, saying, fear not, I'm going first. I'm going ahead of you. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and yielded his spirit. Jesus walked through that door ahead of you. And then, of course, raised to new life, it turned out okay. And in a sense, he's saying no to all of his followers. It's okay. Come with me. I've walked through that door. There is life on the other side. And I will guide you through. So I'm just reminding us today that you can rush very quickly past the physical part. Don't do it. Each of these teaches that body broken for us went through the doorway of death, as will you, unless Christ returns first. Jesus has gone ahead of you. Fear not. Fear not. Okay. This little cracker points us to the body of Jesus broken for you. We remember him. And of course, in Paul's text, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, so the third cup in the story of redemption, called the cup of redemption, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We've spoken of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember Christ. encourage you to read the rest of your sermon notes, a number of things we didn't touch on today. I'd love to have you stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank you for the doctrine of the resurrection. Thank you that you did a good thing when you made humanity. Help us in our living to reflect the glory of what you made, a Christian view of the body. Thank you for the morning. Bless and keep your people as we go from here. Point us to Jesus every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.